0: I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this program, you'll hear from Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace on his new book, Countdown 1945. It takes readers through the days leading to Harry Truman's deployment of nuclear weapons in two Japanese cities as the world marks the 75th anniversary of that history-altering decision.
1: I have received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. In the reply, there is no qualification.
0: That's President Harry Truman, August of 1945, announcing Japan's unconditional surrender following the U.S. deployment of two atomic weapons, ending World War II. Chris Halls, your new book culminates with this event 75 years ago. In the midst of everything that's going on in this country right now, why is it significant or important to pause for a moment and remember this event so long ago?
1: Well, I don't know if, if it's significant, especially, but it's interesting. And that was enough for me. Uh, it, it, I have to say it was, it was significant for me personally because I, as a host of a Sunday talk show, uh, I live and breathe uh, Washington's world today and Trump world today. And one of the joys about researching and then writing and now talking about this book has nothing to do with Donald Trump. And I don't mean that either as praise or denigration of our president. But, you know, I, we, we live in this world, this highly polarized world, uh, zero-sum game, all of that. And it was kind of refreshing to go back to 1945, even though, even though we were in the midst of World War II, because, Susan, we were all on the same side. Everybody was uh, was pulling together, the country uh came together in common cause to beat the enemy, first the the Nazis in Europe, then the the Japanese in the Pacific. And and one of the extraordinary examples of that is the Manhattan Project went on for two plus years. The program to build the atomic bomb uh, started in 1942. Finally, uh, all of these things happened in 1945. 125,000 people working across the country in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Los Alamos, New Mexico, and Wendover, Utah, and Hanford, Washington, and not a single word of it ever leaked. I, I assume we'll get into at some point to the fact that Harry Truman, as vice president, didn't even know about the Manhattan Project. And I couldn't help but think, you know, today, if you had a secret project to bake apple pie, within 24 hours, somebody would go on Twitter or Instagram, and say, this is outrageous and immoral, and I'm going to blow the whistle on it. Uh, it, 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 was a ref- it was refreshing to go back to 1945.
0: You uh, tell your readers that the idea actually started in Nancy Pelosi's office. Tell me the story.
1: Well, I had had the concept for a while, and that was to write a history thriller, to take a, a specific key moment in history and, and try to take the reader along for a ride. Because, you know, I think so much of history is written, well, obviously it's all after the fact, but written as if the reader knows it's all after the fact and why did it happen and, and how did it happen, but not, you know, take me along on a ride as, as it's happening. And the fact is that, that, you know, there were so many momentous events during these 116 days, from when Harry Truman becomes president until the bomb is dropped. Uh, So, so, you know, we don't know, as Truman is trying to decide to either drop the bomb or invade Japan, what he's going to do. We don't know, as the scientists at Los Alamos uh, are going to um, try to make what they call the gadget, the atom bomb, whether it's even going to work when they finally test it. We don't know, as the flight crew of the Enola Gay uh, goes off to drop the bomb on Hiroshima, whether the aftershocks. Of the, of the explosion are going to knock the plane out of the sky. So I, I didn't know that was what I was going to write about, but I thought if you could take people along for a ride and count down the key moments from the beginning of the story to the climax, you know, it, it could be a page turner. But I as I say, I didn't know what the, the specific event was going to be. In February uh, of 2019, on the day that President Trump was going to deliver his State of the Union address. Nancy Pelosi invited four or five of the network anchors over for a pre-bottle, which is a uniquely Washington event. I've seen it with Republican speakers and Democratic presidents, and in this case, uh, Democratic speakers and a Republican president, where they brief you on everything that's wrong with the president's speech before he actually delivers the speech. And she said, uh, w- when we were in this room, and I'd covered the House for a year and a half, I'd never been in this particular room, she said, this was the Board of Education. Well, I was very excited, because I remembered uh, from my history, that was the hideaway that Sam Rayburn, when he, he was speaker in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, his, his special hideaway, and called the Board of Education, where he'd have people come after hours, his cronies, uh, to gossip about politics, to plot strategies sometimes, to uh, deliver to recalcitrant members of Congress, what their marching orders were, and also to strike one for Liberty, which meant to have a bourbon and branch water. And she said it was in this room and the other end of the desk from where she was sitting that on April 12th, 1945, uh, that, that Truman who was then vice president had come in. He was a, a regular at the board of education and, uh, uh, Roy Byrne said, hey, the White House is looking for you. So Truman poured himself uh, a drink, uh, and then he dialed National 1414, uh, didn't know what it was, just knew the White House was looking for him, was put on the phone with Steve Early, the uh, President, President Roosevelt's longtime secretary, who said, get to the White House as quickly and quietly as you can. And, and Pelosi said, Truman hung up the phone and said, Jesus Christ and General Jackson. And then scurried out of the board of education and i suddenly thought that's it uh that's my key moment from and i didn't know it was 116 days then that's what it turned out to be from when truman gets the call that it will eventually lead to him finding out in an hour that uh, that roosevelt has died and that he is now president to 116 days later when they dropped the bomb on hiroshima
0: well, on the secrecy, let's start with Harry Truman. What does it say about FDR's leadership that he kept a secret of such magnitude from from Vice President Truman?
1: I would say that that Roosevelt had gotten. Remember, this is he'd just been elected to his fourth term, so he's 13 years into the presidency, and he just basically ignored his vice presidents. He didn't pay attention to them. In fact, we tell the story in the book that that uh, they his current vice president in 1944 was henry wallace who was very far to the left and there was great concern in the party among party regulars that roosevelt might not uh, live might not survive a fourth term that he was quite ill and they didn't want henry wallace to be president he had some socialist tendencies a lot of the people around him were even further to the left uh so they wanted to replace him And, and again Roosevelt doesn't seem to have been particularly concerned because I think he thought he was going to live forever, at least through the end of this fourth term. So uh, they were going to have the, the Democratic Party convention in Chicago. The Democratic Party chair was a fellow named Robert Hannigan, and he and the other party brokers decided we've got to get Wallace out of there and we've got to put something, somebody else in to the job. Uh, Roosevelt seemed to have been largely uninvolved in all this, and they looked around at the various names of various people uh, Wallace still wanted to stay in the job, uh, Jimmy Byrne, who had been a former senator and su- Supreme Court justice who was now heading the office of war mobilization for Roosevelt. Uh, he was a possibility, and in fact, Truman was going to go to Chicago and nominate uh, Jimmy Byrne, uh, Alban Barkley was another possibility, and the Democratic Party leaders made the calculation not that Truman was so well qualified for the job but that he would work, uh, hurt the ticket the least. Only 2% of, uh, in a Gallup poll uh, supported Truman, but they thought you know, he wouldn't do any damage. So that was that. Was that. And he came to Chicago and did not want to be uh, the vice president, and they finally hooked up a call in a Chicago hotel room uh, so that uh, Truman, they called him in, and he could overhear the Democratic Party Chair Hannigan talking to Roosevelt who was in San Diego at the time. And it was all set up and Roosevelt said, well, have you gotten that, that Missouri senator to sign on? And Hannigan uh, said, no, he is the contrariest Missouri mule I've ever met. And Roosevelt said, well, if he wants to break up the Democratic Party and sink my presidency in the middle of World War II. Anyway, they put Roosevelt <laughs> on the phone and he protested and resisted for a little bit and finally said, if the commander in chief wants me to do it, I'll do it. So he was on the ticket. They get elected. Uh, They are inaugurated in uh, January, January 20th of 45. And Roosevelt completely forgets about him. Truman was vice president for 82 days. He had met with Roosevelt in private twice in those 82 days. And as you point out, he is sworn in as president about 615, 630 on April 12th. And he talks to the cabinet, tells them, I want you all to stay on. They all leave and the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, says, Mr. President, I need to talk to you, takes him into a private room and says, I need to tell you about an immense project to develop a a weapon of indescribable power. That was literally, he'd been vice president, as I say, for almost three months. That was literally the first inkling that Truman had about the existence of the Manhattan Project to develop the atom bomb. Roosevelt had never shared it with
0: him. So uh, were, do we know if any senior members of Congress had been briefed on the project?
1: No. No members, no so, members of Congress had been briefed on the project. How, they,
0: how well, did Well, they- that's the
1: uh, interesting thing. You, you, Truman was as keyed into all of that as possible. He was the head of something called the Truman Committee, uh, which was specifically uh, involved and, and uh, authorized to look into defense spending. And at one point... He had been poking around about an installation in Washington state, which in fact was part of the Manhattan Project. And when Stimson, the secretary of war, got word about this, I think it was in 43 or 44, he calls up Truman and says, uh, listen, Senator, I, I know all about that project. And, you know, I just want you to know it's OK. And uh, Truman completely backed off and said, if it's a, you know, if that's what you say, Mr. Secretary, I take your word for it. Um, and, and that was one of the things Truman was astonished by because Congress had appropriated $2 billion in the previous two years, but it had been all secret. And Truman couldn't understand how that kind of money could have been turned over from Congress to the administration, and they didn't know what they were spending it on.
0: Where did the Manhattan Project get its name?
1: Well, uh, a lot of the scientists were in Manhattan at the time, uh, the, the basic history is that in 1939, uh, let me back up just a little bit. So you have a number of, of Jewish German refugees who leave Germany uh, as Hitler rises to power. And they understood that uh, as Jews that they weren't long for this world. And they go to England or they go to the United States. Uh, and that includes Albert Einstein. And there is an increasing fear as we get to the late 30s that Germany, which still has a lot of brilliant scientists, may develop uh, a nuclear weapon, an atom bomb. And the last thing any of these scientists want is to have Hitler have access to uh, the only atom bomb in the world. So in 1939, uh, 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 Albert Einstein writes a letter to FDR and basically says, you know, we think this technology is out there and the U.S., the free world, needs it and to develop it before Hitler and the Nazis do. Roosevelt kind of sits on it until 1942 when Churchill, uh, and there were some of these scientists who were in, in Britain, says to Roosevelt, you know, we really need to get going on it. And in 1942, he starts the Manhattan Project. As I say, a lot of the scientists were in Manhattan. And one of the things that happens is they assign a major general named Leslie Groves to start putting this together. And Groves realized you can't have all these scientists all over the country. You've got to put them all together. Uh, And and that's the real beginning of the Manhattan Project. And you see uh, three major installations, Oak Ridge in Tennessee, which ends up becoming an enrichment, uranium er, enrichment site. Same thing for Hanford, Washington. And then the the real brain power, about 8,000 scientists and technicians uh, and engineers at Los Alamos in, in kind of very deserted area of, uh, of New Mexico where Robert Oppenheimer, the scientific director of the project, had uh, spent some of his time growing up as a kid. And he convinced Groves, let's put the, the real laboratory there.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about Robert Oppenheimer, 40 years old at the time? What did he bring to the table for this project?
1: Absolute brilliance. He was a a brilliant theoretical physicist um uh, astonishingly uh intelligent brain power he knew six languages he um, he learned the sanskrit so he could read a Hindu devotional poem the Bhagavad Gita which later comes into the story uh and and he you know it was an interesting thing he was seen as um you know something of a prima donna as a lot of these scientists were but but uh, groves decides he's the right man for the project and it was this fascinating combination of groves who was this six foot 250 pound bulldozer of a guy who in 1941 and two in about a year and a half built the pentagon uh and and you know which is the biggest office building in the world uh, at the and, you know, just a ma- massive project and put it, you know, built it right on time. And so the government decides and Roosevelt decides he's the right guy to do this massive project. And, and, and he then recruits Oppenheimer to do it. And, and it, so you have the military push and drive and discipline of Groves. And then you have the sheer scientific brilliance of Oppenheimer, who was the scientific director of the program. And I, th- I think Oppenheimer really is the key figure here because on the one hand, you had Groves demanding military discipline and security and deadlines. And a lot of the scientists were uh, were bucking out at this and somehow Oppenheimer kind of had to keep the scientists on board uh, while on the other hand trying to meet the deadlines that, that Groves was setting. And, and, and Groves was not very... Uh, was not very patient. He called uh, the, the 8,000 scientists in Los Alamos a bunch of prima donnas and said that he was, he was uh, conducting a giant opera. Uh, so it, it was a kind of clash of temperaments and wills, but somehow it worked.
0: I was struck by the quote you had of Oppenheimer's uh, reaction on the news of FDR's death. The quote was, Roosevelt was a great architect. Perhaps Truman will be a very good carpenter. Was well, they had, knew, you know, just as, as
1: Truman knew absolutely nothing uh, about the Manhattan Project, the scientists knew nothing about Truman. And, uh, you know, they had been working, not hand in glove, because obviously there, there was uh, some separation, and Roosevelt had a lot of other things on his plate, but they knew they were working very much at the direction of the president and that he had taken a keen personal interest in starting and funding and keeping... Manhattan Project going, and now suddenly he's gone, and this stranger is there. And 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 I think one thing that you can't overstate is when when Roosevelt, I'm I'm sorry, when Truman takes over in April uh, of 1945, the bomb doesn't work yet. They're four months away from it, it, the first test, and there was a tremendous debate that was going on in in throughout the government at that time whether it would even work. Yes, they had split an atom in a laboratory but whether you could take this this uh, atomic chain reaction and harness it and create a super weapon that was very much in doubt and in fact uh... admiral william leahy who was one of the top people in the navy and was the chief of staff in the white house to Tr- roosevelt and then also to truman throughout the entire period of these hundred sixteen days and countdown nineteen forty five throughout that period leahy keeps saying this is the biggest uh, bit of bunk I've ever heard, There, th- this thing will never work. So there was a lot of doubt as to whether it was going to work. And therefore, uh, Truman had a lot of doubts about
0: it. I know you spent a lot of time in the uh, Truman uh, Presidential Library. What did you learn about how Harry Truman went about making the decision to deploy?
1: Well, it, this was one of the most interesting parts to me of the whole story, Susan, because uh, I've interviewed seven presidents. I spent six years covering Ronald Reagan's White House in the 80s. So I was, you know, I, I like to think I'm a student of presidential decision making. And, and you know, sometimes you see it being car- done very well and carefully and sometimes not so much. There were really three things that impressed me uh, about Truman. First of all, how meticulous he was. Uh, he goes over this again and again and again. And and. You know, the choice, I think a lot of people didn't understand this. I didn't fully understand this uh, going into this. The choice wasn't drop the bomb on uh, Hiroshima or whatever the city it was going to be or do nothing. It was drop the bomb or invade Japan. And so there was a lot of discussion. Uh, On June 18th, uh, Truman has all of the war cabinet come. uh, This includes Secretary of War Stimson. It includes some of the top admirals, it includes General of the Army, George Marshall, and he has them all come to the Oval Office and, and have a discussion about, you know, what are we going to do to end the war in the Pacific? It, it, by June, the, the Nazis have surrendered on May 8th, so that's the war that's left. How are we going to end that war? Uh, and the Japanese, far from giving up, are in fact fighting more fiercely than ever, and it's only a, 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 a fairly short discussion. I think it was about an hour, but for about the first fifty minutes or so, it's simply a discussion of invading Japan, and and uh, the one is leading the discussion is General Marshall, and he says, "Look, uh, you know, he compares the casualty rates to what had happened in the invasion of Normandy and the invasion of some of the islands of the Pacific." And he comes up, I I was astonished at this, and I've read the minutes of the meeting, uh, with a specific number of how many troops he's going to need, 766,700. I have no idea why it was that specific number, but that was the number he said. And the projection is from all of the people that this is going to take at least a year and maybe a year and a half. Remember, they're meeting in June of '45, and they're saying this war will go on until the end of 1946. And they say, we believe there are going to be a million Japanese casualties and up to a half a million American casualties. And there's this long description about, you know, first they're going to hit uh, Kyushu, the most southernmost island, then they're going to hit Honshu, and on and on. And at the end of the discussion, There's not, anyway, at the end of the discussion, so they've been uh, talking about the invasion in great detail, at the end of the the discussion, and this is one of the the second thing that impressed me about Truman, he wanted to hear from everybody. Uh, He he wanted to hear from people whether they agreed with the direction he was going in or not. He was not scared at all of dissent. One person has been silent in this whole meeting, and it's a fellow named John McCloy. McCloy is an assistant secretary of war, maybe the most junior person in the room, but he was a very distinguished lawyer from New York. He was Stimson's troubleshooter, and and Truman says to him, uh, "McCloy, nobody leaves this room without saying what's on their mind." And McCloy turns to Stimson, and 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 like, "Can I?" And Stimson says, "Yeah, go ahead." And he says, "Well, I think we ought to have our heads examined if we don't discuss other options." And then he does something that in the previous 45, 50 minutes, Susan, had not been done. He mentions the bomb for the first time and says, you know, w- there is this bomb. And I think we ought to consider that, which might, uh, you know, uh, r- might obviate the need for an, an invasion. And th- there's, a, there's a discussion of it, but not a terribly serious and detailed discussion, because, again, they've never tested it. They don't know if it's going to work. So, uh, as I say, at the end of that chapter, at, this, at that point, Truman basically regarded it as a science project. They've, he goes on to Potsdam, where he has this summit meeting with, uh, with Churchill and Stalin, uh, and, and he has these meetings all over again with the, with the, uh, the U.S. War count Cabinet, with the British War Cabinet, along with Churchill. By this point, when he starts having that in July, they've tested the bomb. They know it works. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, again a discussion, and he basically decides I'm gonna drop the bomb. But then a few days later, he has a, a, a meeting on July 20th with Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe and the hero of D-Day and the, and the conquest uh, of the Germans. And he asks uh, Eisenhower what he thinks. And he says, I don't think you should use the bomb. I think that one, the Japanese will surrender anyway, and, uh, and two, I don't think that the U.S. should be the country to introduce this terrible technology to the world. Uh, so, so those are two of the three things. I promise I'm going to end quickly. So first of all, the meticulousness of his decision making. Secondly, the fact that he sought out, was not afraid, was not put off by dissent, didn't always follow it, but he listened to it. And the third is that I think, I think a lot of people have this perception of Truman as being faci- famously decisive, the, the buck stops here. He made a decision and he never looked back. In fact, he agonized over this decision. He uh, he complained of sleepless nights when he was in Potsdam. He had terrible searing headaches, which he had throughout his career whenever he was under what he considered heavy stress. And, and his diary, and that's one of the joys of doing a book about people who are all gone, when I was in the presidential library, I got a hold of his diaries during this whole period, these whole 116 days that I talk about in Countdown 1945. And he, he talked about uh, the, the choice of using the bomb in apocalyptic terms. He kept saying this is the most terrible weapon ever discovered. And he compared it to the fire destruction prophecy in the Bible. So he agonized over this decision as well. I think he should have he made the decision, and he never looked back thereafter. But he certainly uh, did not make this decision lightly.
0: You write about the fact that, uh, as groups, the scientists involved in the development and the military leaders had differing opinions on the morality of using this weapon. What were the arguments that they were uh, really uh, hashing out on both sides of this question?
1: Well, I'd even I'd even say that there's sort of three. Uh, sides of this triangle, and two of the three didn't have a lot of second thoughts. The politicians, after the bomb was dropped, like Truman, uh, like uh, the, his top officials in his war cabinet, never had any doubts about it. Uh, the military never had any doubts. Uh, uh, Paul Tibbetts, who was the commander of the Enola Gay, the plane uh, that, that dropped the bomb, he said, this is war. And in a war, you 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 want to kill the enemy before the enemy kills you. And there's not a lot of morality uh, attached to war. The scientists were a different story, and it wasn't just second thoughts. A lot of them had first thoughts. There were uh, several led by Leo Szilard, one of the top scientists who was sort of involved very early on, uh, who had had serious doubts about the morality of the bomb, and in fact tried to petition Roosevelt when he was still in live, alive, you know, either to not use it or do a demonstration to try to avoid the bloodletting. Uh, and there's a fascinating scene. You know, it, I, you talk to a lot of authors, Susan, but I, and I'm sure a lot of them share this enthusiasm that you sort of know the story, but obviously when you begin, you don't know all the details. And as you begin to research it, you find out about, about uh, scenes, characters, moments, events, details that, uh, you know, that you didn't know about that just make the story so much richer. And that if you'd been a Hollywood screenwriter, you wouldn't ever have dared to write. So in October of 45, two months after the dropping of the bomb, Robert Oppenheimer, who I talked about earlier, who was the scientific director, and I think if you had to say the single person most responsible for for the creation of the bomb, it would be him. uh, He goes to the Oval Office to meet with Truman. And he, at this point, is riven with regrets. And he says to Truman, I think I have blood on my hands. And uh, Truman says, I'm the one who has blood on my hands. Let me worry about it. And he can't get Oppenheimer out quickly enough. And then he turns to his staff and he says, I never want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Well, we have Oppenheimer uh, in 1945 uh, telling uh, NBC, apologies for that, uh, in a documentary uh, about what he was thinking after witnessing that first test in Los Alamos. Let's listen to his own words.
1: We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita.
0: What's your reaction?
1: Well, it, you know, it, again, that's one of those moments uh, that you sit there and say a, a screenwriter couldn't have put this together, and he did say that uh, at Alamogordo in this vast deserted desert uh, on July sixteenth, nineteen forty-five, and and I think it's one of the most dramatic parts of Countdown nineteen forty-five is the drama of that test. I mean, let me just sort of quickly set the scene. So Truman wakes up on July 16th that morning in Potsdam. He is there to uh... begin a a summit meeting with Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and Stalin, the Premier of Russia. And he's openly admits uh... openly. He admits in letters to his wife uh, in his diaries that he was nervous about this because, you know, the big three had been Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt. And they had had quite a working relationship, Churchill and Roosevelt particularly. They'd spent 100 nights together uh, during World War II, but Roosevelt had a relationship with Stalin as well. And now here is, is Truman who has come to fill uh, Roosevelt's shoes. And he understands he's very much the junior partner. But he knows that day they're going to test the atom bomb for the first time in Alamogordo. Uh, Potsdam, Germany, was eight hours ahead, so he knew it was going to be late in the day before he was going to find out the results of the test. In Alamogordo, they have a hundred-foot tower, and on the top of the tower is a plutonium bomb, what, what they, they call those fat boys, opposed to little man, the, uh, the uh, uranium-235 bombs. Uh, and there's a terrible weather, and there are lightning strikes, and there was some concern with the lightning detonate the bomb, before they were prepared for it. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people would get killed, but no. And and there was also concern about the rain and whether they might have to delay the test. And Leslie Groves, the general, really didn't want to delay the test because he had told Truman it was going to happen that day. But some of the scientists were concerned about the rain and the lightning and all of that. Anyway, as the meteorologist says, the weather clears exactly at 5.30, local time, mountain time in Alamogordo, and uh, they detonate the bomb. It wasn't dropped. They hit a button and it goes through wires and the bomb blows up. And there there were literally a pool like March Madness of the NCAA basketball tournament among these world-famous scientists as to what was going to happen when they hit the button. Some said it was going to be a dud, Some said, uh, you know, it was going to be equivalent to 5 or 10 or 20,000 tons of TNT. Some said, would it ignite the atmosphere? And if so, would it take out New Mexico or maybe the whole world? Uh, But they detonated it, and it was exactly what they had expected, which was this gigantic explosion. First, this flash of light. Uh, You know, it was still pretty dark at 5.30 in the morning in Alamogordo, and they said it was like... Uh, you know, a noonday bright sun. They, all of the scientists had welder's glasses on their eyes. They were all lying face down in these uh, uh, cement bunkers. Um, so not to look at the flash, even with the welder's glasses on, but they could still see this brilliant flash of light and then a fireball and then this this mushroom cloud that billowed 40,000 feet into the air. Um, everything vanished, the steel tower, was vaporized. So was every living thing from antelope to blades of grass. There was a thousand foot long crater uh, gashed into the, uh, into the desert. And, uh, and maybe we'll get to it in a minute, but there was a newspaper man there who was embedded in the project, a fellow named William uh, Lawrence, a New York Times reporter who was on a secret mission and t- for about three, four months with the project and he wrote a story which of course didn't wasn't published until after the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and he at that moment he coined the phrase the atomic age the atomic age began at 5:30 a.m. in the Alamogordo desert
0: you also when harry truman uh, shared the news of the successful test with the other leaders at potsdam you write that it began the 20th century arms race
1: well and not that. It was, it, was, it was when he told Stalin. So what happens is they now know that the bomb works, and Truman knows that instead of being the junior partner in all this, he's the senior partner in all this because he's got the weapon. And he and Churchill had been very much in, first Roosevelt and Churchill, now Truman and Churchill were very much in, in collaboration on this. So Churchill knew all about the development And they're talking about this. But one of the questions they have is, when are we going to tell Stalin? They think Stalin knows nothing about the development of the bomb and for the last three years because Roosevelt and Churchill had never shared it with him. So the decision is made, well, we want to tell him about it because if we leave Potsdam and then we drop it on Hiroshima, he's going to be furious that, you know, we're supposedly allies and we've left him out in the cold. But we want to tell him as little as possible and as late as possible. So finally... On July 24th, uh, eight days after the successful test, Truman and Churchill decide they're gonna tell him, but they're gonna try to do it as casually as possible if such a thing is possible. So they're having the Potsdam Conference in this palace, the Sicilianhof Palace in Potsdam was a suburb of Berlin, and uh, Truman, it, they decide, is gonna go up and kind of, kind of casually mention it to Stalin. So he goes up after the session has ended, they each had five people at this round table, and Truman goes over by himself, leaves the US delegation, and Stalin is, is standing there with uh, his his translator, the, the, the Russian who is translating English to Russian and Russian to English, and says to him, uh, I, I need to tell you that we have developed a weapon of immense power. And Stalin says, well, I hope you'll put it to good use against the Japanese, and then he walks away. And Truman is dumbfounded. He's, he, you know, they've been worrying for a week now about how they're gonna tell Stalin and what his reaction is gonna be, and they tell him, and the care. So Churchill walks up to Truman as Stalin walks away and said, what happened? Because he see, he wasn't there, but he sees from across the table, it was a very brief conversation. And Truman recounts it, said, I told him this, and he said that. And, uh, you know, they're not sure whether or not the message really got through the translator, what he was saying. Well, the fact is that Stalin was interested. He just wasn't surprised, because, in fact, there was a, a German physicist named Klaus Fuchs, who was part of the Manhattan Project, German refugee. And he had been very loyal to the Communist Party, in germany as hitler was rising he thought the communist party was very was the only organization that might be able to stop hitler of course they weren't and he emigrates to britain and then to the united states becomes part of the manhattan project but he still his prime loyalty is to communism and so he during this period of time had been smuggling information out to a courier named raymond who got the information back to moscow to the kremlin And so later that night on July 24th, uh, Stalin and Molotov, the uh, Russian foreign minister, are meeting in their quarters there in Potsdam. And somebody not understanding what it is overhears them saying, you know, we need to get going on this now, talking about their nuclear project. And uh, a historian later said that the nuclear arms race began at 7.30 p.m. on July 24th, 1945 at the Sicilian off a Palace, which is the moment at which Truman told Stalin it works.
0: So next clip we have is from Paul Tibbetts. As you told us, he was the pilot charged with assembling the team of airmen who would uh, take the planes over to, to drop the bombs. Let's listen to him and then we'll learn a little bit more about him and how he structured it. Well, as
1: the bomb left the airplane, we took over uh, manual control made it an extremely steep turn to try and put as much distance between ourselves and the explosion as possible. After we uh, felt the uh, explosion hit the airplane, that is the concussion waves, uh, we knew that the bomb had explosion, had exploded, everything was a success, so we turned around to take a look at it. The sight that greeted our eyes was quite uh, beyond what we had expected because we saw this cloud of boiling dust and debris below us with this tremendous mushroom on top. Uh, Beneath that was hidden the ruins of the city of Hiroshima.
0: How many planes were involved altogether? And and second question is, did the people involved in this mission know that there was a a good possibility they would not survive it?
1: Yeah, there was a lot of of doubt about that. There were seven planes involved in the mission. There were planes that were scouting out first, whether there was, what the weather was. So there were weather planes to make sure that uh, Hiroshima was clear, also to make sure that there weren't a lot of Japanese fighters there. Uh, As they came in closer, there was a backup plane on Iwo Jima. There were three planes, the Enola Gay, which was the plane, and I'll tell you in a second who that was was named after. Uh, And then there was one plane to photograph the explosion, and there was another plane... To take instrumentation of the, you know, the the data of the size and the force of the explosion. So there were seven planes involved, and each one had about twelve crew members. The Enola Gay certainly had twelve. There were two pilots. There was a bombardier. There was a, a navigator. There was a gunner, and on and on. Um, there were at least three <laughs> huge questions that uh, the, the, the the crew had when they took off. The first was whether or not they'd get off the ground because it was a B-29 and um, it had never carried that much weight. The bomb weighed almost 10,000 pounds. And because it was near the front of the plane and you couldn't, you had to have the plane balanced. You couldn't have all the the weight in the nose or else it wasn't gonna be able to take off. They had to put an extra load of, of fuel, not for fuel, but basically as weight in the back of the plane there was a big question as to whether this plane was going to get off the runway at Tinian Island, and, and and it almost didn't, and and take off. The result of that is that the day before, when they suddenly considered the possibility that the plane might crash, they realized we can't have the bomb armed when we take off, because if it crashes, we'll have a nuclear explosion, and the only thing we'll take out is the U.S. air base at Tinian Island. It won't do anything to the Japanese. So literally 24 hours before this whole thing begins, the chief ordnance officer, a fellow named Deke Parsons says, we can't take off with this bomb armed. We're gonna have to arm it on the plane. And they said, well, have you ever done that? And he says, no. And they said, well, how are you gonna learn it? He says, I got 24 hours. So he gets in to the Enola Gay, the, the B-29 superfortress on the ground on August 5th and works in sweltering heat, 100 degrees. Imagine you're in this, this plane. This metal plane and taking apart the back of the uh, of the little boy, the uh, uranium U-235 bomb, ch- fiddling with the circuitry to seeing how he can keep it disarmed until they actually take off. So that was that was concern one that the bomb might actually explode when the plane crashed on takeoff. Another one was there was considerable concern as to whether on their way there uh, that they might get captured or shot down by the Japanese so each member of the crew had a cyanide capsule because they all felt it better to kill yourself than to you know be subject to the not-so-tender mercies of the Japanese were they to capture you and then the other great concern because they, again the bomb was tested once July 16th in Alamogordo where they have this massive explosion nobody has any idea what's gonna happen when they drop the bomb from a plane, which had never happened, and you have the concussion, the shock waves coming from the explosion. And that's why, as you heard in that clip, uh, Tibbetts talking about as soon as he dropped the the bomb, well before, they were at 30,000 feet and the bomb dropped at about 1,500 feet elevated above Hiroshima, he puts the plane into a steep right-hand turn, about 155 degrees, a steep dive, because they want to get out of the of the bomb blast as quickly and dramatically as possible and he says it's only after the bomb has exploded and they felt uh, the, the, uh, the 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 only person who actually saw it was the tail gunner in the back of the plane a fellow named bob Caron who used to wear a brooklyn dodgers cap the whole time he was always out of uniform he's the only one who sees the explosion and sees these rings of the of the shock waves coming at the plane And they described it like a giant with a with a huge pole beating on the plane. You know, they just didn't know what it what it was going to be. And they they obviously they survived it. But it was only then that he turned the plane around and they saw the utter destruction of what they had wrought on the city of 250,000. And the co-pilot, a fellow named Robert Lewis, wrote in a log he was keeping for that New York Times reporter, my God, what have we done? And a lot of people thought, well, he obviously, when he saw what, what the, the bombing of Hiroshima had grave doubts about it and huge second thoughts, he never admitted to that. And, and basically, he said when he wrote that, he was basically just shocked at the immensity of the destruction and what the explosion had done, not that he was saying we shouldn't have done it.
0: You tell this story through the lens of not only the countdown, but also a number of people whom we've talked about. I want to get one more voice in here, and that is of Heideko Tamura. Let's listen to her, and you can tell us a little bit more about why you chose her story. You know, under that cloud, within a few days, 70,000 people died. Under that cloud, my house came down. I had a huge glass shards that I had to, I asked somebody, help me, help me. You know, I was one of those weakling who couldn't even touch anything and run to my mother and says, Ma, Ma. And there was this big thing stuck in my foot and no one would pay any attention to it help yourself. Everybody's hurt. So I sat down. I I think I realized then the end of my childhood has come. Ten years old at the time. Why did you choose to include her story in this?
1: Well, look, if you're going to tell the story of Hiroshima and you've talked about the moral considerations and the fact that it was a you know, a cold-blooded uh, calculation by, by Truman. A lot of people are going to die, including a lot of women and children. This was, uh, it had a military component. There were about 50,000 uh, soldiers garrisoned there, but they were, it was a city of 250,000. Uh, you have to tell that part of the story. And Hideko Tamura was so extraordinary, because as you say, she's a, a 10-year-old girl, her parents send her, uh, Hiroshima hadn't been bombed at all, but her parents, like a lot of parents in Japan did, because other cities were being bombed conventionally. 100,000 people were killed in the firebombing of Tokyo. She was sent out to the countryside uh, with her best friend to what was supposed to be a school, but she found out it was a work camp. She hated it. And so she smuggles a letter back to her mother and says, please rescue us. And her mother comes and to, to rescue her and also the mother of her best friend Miyoshi come uh, and, and they say well let's stay here for a few days in the, in the countryside so we can rest and Hideko says no I want to go back tomorrow one night then we go back she, they, she makes her mother go back on August 5th which meant that she was on the ground ground zero in Hiroshima on the morning of August 6th when the bomb drops on Hiroshima her mother had gone out on a civil defense mission. She was killed. A number of members of her family were killed. Hideko was 10 years old. Interestingly enough, her mother, not ever anticipating an atom bomb, but anticipating an explosion had drilled into her. What do you do? If there's any kind of an explosion, you get under something strong and sturdy, like a, a table or in a, a doorway, because the building is gonna collapse on you, and, which it did, but she was able to dig her way out and then she said, the mother had told her, get out and go to the river. The Ota River runs right through Hiroshima because there will be fires, there'll be explosions, and that's the one place you'll be safe from that. And so Hideko is by herself, sees the flash, blacks out, wakes up under a, a you know, huge rubble. Her aunt, who's alive, helps her dig out. She's basically, she has some bruises, but she has a big gash in her right ankle She binds that up and this little, because the family is paralyzed in shock, goes off by herself, walks through the street, sees, you know, Dante's Inferno, uh, people whose eyes have been sucked out of their eye sockets, Uh, people with the only thing that exists is the shadow of where they were standing because it's been vaporized and there's a shadow on the wall where they were standing. Uh, is looking for her mother, can't find her, and saves herself at age 10. And the, the most the capper to the story is that she's still alive. She was 10 then. She's now in her mid-80s. Uh, she lives in the United States. She came here when she was about 17, 18, went to Worcester College, uh, married an American, had children and a grandchild, lives in Bend, Oregon, um, and is just a force of nature, a remarkable woman.
0: How popular was the decision to drop the bombs here in the United States?
1: Well, very. I mean, look, it, 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 first of all, there was not a lot of sympathy. You know, we talk a lot now about the carnage and the, and the c- civilians, the innocent women and children. There was not a lot of sympathy for the, for the Japanese. Uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, a series of atrocities involving uh, U.S. soldiers. There had been pictures that had been in papers in America of american prisoners of war being beheaded by japanese in prison camps in asia um so right after the the um, war i think it was 85 87 percent in a gallup poll supported dropping the bomb oh, universal i mean and and one of the other concerns we tell a story of somebody else a woman who was working unbeknownst to herself on the uh at oak ridge you're enriching uranium she was terribly concerned because her boyfriend, later her husband, had survived Europe and now was going to be shipped over to the Pacific. So, you know, they didn't know all of the details that we've discussed today about the the loss of life from invading Japan, but they certainly knew that if a war continued in the Pacific, it was going to be a bloodbath and a lot of Americans were going to die. So, you know, the war ends Just a few days after Hiroshima, there's a second bombing in Nagasaki because the Japanese don't surrender immediately. Eventually, they do. And the overwhelming feeling of Americans is, thank God, the war is over, we've won, and no more of our... uh, And in fact, Harry Truman said this. Harry Truman writes at one point, I don't think... Rather, I think the flower of American youth is worth a couple of Japanese cities. And that was the calculation that he made in... I think the calculation that the vast majority of Americans make.
0: Well, listen to Harry Truman as we get near our close here, uh, addressing critics of his decision. This is in 1964. It's a clip from the Truman Library.
1: There are a lot of crybabies around who are talking about what ought to have done, and Obama ought to have had a demonstration in Japan before he killed all those people. Uh, but I had the authority of the best man in the business, and that was Henry L. Stimson, that the only operation that the Japanese would understand would be one that would show them what it was. And that's what happened.
0: And it stopped the war. I don't care what the crybabies say now because they didn't have to make the decision. So in effect, pe- people who read your book at this point will also see a study of presidential leadership and decision-making. Here we are in a presidential election year. Is it fair to compare uh, Harry Truman and his style of leadership with what presidents have to face today?
1: Sure. Uh, and I'm going to leave it to, to you to do it. I mean, I, you know, as I said early on, one of the joys to me of this book is it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. So I leave it to everybody to compare... Uh, Truman with Trump and Truman with Biden. Uh, I will say this, as tough as the decisions that, that this president has had to face and whoever is gonna be president in 2021 is gonna have to face, I don't know that any president has ever had to face a decision tougher than to drop the bomb on Hiroshima and what that meant for, uh, for the world. And, 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 and in two senses, and, and Truman was keenly aware of this, First of all, the loss of life from dropping a bomb, as it turned out, two bombs on Japan. But secondly, taking the nuclear genie out of the bottle. Now, you know, they knew if the U.S. has developed a bomb now, eventually, and they, they suspected, the Russians will develop a, a bomb. And in fact, they did in 1949. And of course that, unless we now have 50,000 nuclear weapons all over the world and you know how many countries from the u.s. and russia and britain and china and india and pakistan and north korea but it is worth noting there's only one country that has ever used a nuclear weapon in war and that's the united states
0: we have about five minutes left Um Maybe just pivot to today. You've been covering this country now for four and a half decades plus. What do you think about the state of this country right now with the multiple challenges we face compared to past times you've covered?
1: Well, you know, as I I said earlier on, I think the thing that, that struck me and which was most refreshing, if you will, about 1945 was how unified we were. And there were differences of opinion about how to proceed. But in the middle of the war, everybody was on the same side. And and there was tremendous unity, tremendous security when it came to the Manhattan Project, because nobody wanted to do anything to impede our ability to win the war. And now you see how tribal this country is, how utterly divided we are, where in the midst of a pandemic, that uh, the, the question as to something as elemental as where or, whether or not you wear a mask, which all the scientists say you need to to protect yourself from this coronavirus and to protect other people from the coronavirus becomes a political issue uh, is, is just terribly sad. Or you look at something like the the death of George Floyd and hundreds of thousands of people go out into the street to, to argue for police reform. Now there are differences as to the level of police reform, And it looks like the sum total of it, at least as we talk today, is that nothing's gonna get done because the Republicans and the Democrats can't get together and resolve their differences to come up with a package. So as a result, nothing's gonna get done, as we've seen with school shootings and, and gun control or with immigration reform. So that was a country that was able to muster the will and the unity to accomplish great things. This seems to be a country now which is unable to muster the will and the unity to accomplish what would seem to be very basic things. And I think, I think that's terribly sad. I, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that a, a book about dropping the atom bomb is a feel-good book, but reading about the unity of the country at that time, uh, I think we could use some of that today.
0: The book is called Countdown 1945. It is available wherever people buy books these days. Chris Wallace, thank you very much for joining us to tell us the story of Harry Truman's momentous decision-making.
1: Thank you, Susan. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.